living in Australia, <clears throat> from time to time, people make the comment that Buddhism is a very gloomy teaching or philosophy. They point out the first noble truth is dukkha. Often make the comment that life is all suffering, the Buddha said, and so on. But of course, if you study and practice Buddhism, that view will quickly disappear because obviously the Buddhist teachings are full of description of the way things are in the world and the way happiness arises and how we can free ourselves from dukkha. Sometimes the Buddha would say, we, I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. Very simply. So obviously dukkha is only half of the story. The end of the dukkha is what we're all seeking in our practice. Really the Buddha was just pointing out the way things are. He was a loka widu, the knower of the worlds. <coughs> and because of his practice, training the mind in the Eightfold Noble Path, mindfulness, wisdom, yet that clarity that he could point out the way the world is rather than the way the world should be or the way the world, how we would like it to be. Just that he just pointed out the way it is, the limitations of this world that it is bound up with dukkha. Dukkha can have different meanings in different contexts, but comes from the root of uh, being that which is hard to endure, that which is unenduring, and that which is hard to endure, doesn't last. Can also mean that which oppresses and as much in this world that oppresses us as human beings being born into the world. And we can't find enduring happiness in the things of this world, say in the material things or even in the mental world. We can't find true satisfaction, contentment in things that are innately, inherently subject to change, difficult to endure. So whether it's mental states and feelings or material things or life itself, which is impermanent. And we can't find lasting happiness in any of these things. But we're often acting with the delusion that we can. 
what we call vipalasa, and the perversion of view, or even sometimes they translate it as hallucination. We have some strange belief that there sh should be some happiness, lasting happiness in this world, and so we're always seeking it and then always getting disappointed when we can't maintain it or have it. The Buddha didn't teach that there's no happiness. There is happiness in the world, but it's temporary, it's limited, particularly Gama Sukha, the sensual happiness the objects of the senses don't last sensual experience sight, sound, taste, smell, touch they arise, they cease the happiness they bring arises and ceases and the one experiencing whatever pleasure the world can bring us that experience of pleasure doesn't last the objects don't last the one experiencing doesn't last, it's temporary. So the Buddha was just drawing our attention to this fact. And by its nature, living in this world, it puts pressure on us. One of the characteristics of dukkha is it's oppressive to the mind. And the five khandhas in this body and the mental faculties that make up a human being, they're oppressive in their nature because they're always changing and ultimately out of control. Living in the world on, in a material sense, it's oppressive. We have to earn a living. Even as monks, we have to take our arms bowl and receive food. Dealing with the elements, the weather, the threat of disease, the aches and pains of life. Life in this world is oppressive. Competing with other people, trying to get on with other people. When Buddha, the Buddha first was teaching Anattapindika, the wealthy merchant, I think his original name was Sataka. Came to see the Buddha, he'd been excited all night, having heard the Buddha was coming. Just the word Buddha, an enlightened sage, an awakened one, was enough to bring up a lot of pamoja, joy, at the thought that there's a chance to meet a pure, enlightened being. We couldn't sleep all night. And crawling out of respect towards the Buddha, the Buddha called out his name, Sataka. So even more joy and amazement that the Buddha knew his name. And the Buddha gave him a talk on the Four Noble Truths and talked a bit about how life is suffering. Which as a family man and a businessman, he probably understood very well. He said life is a bit like, we're like mushrooms. We grow up in the earth, but when a mushroom 
shoots up and often very quickly by the standards of the plant world. A mushroom can appear overnight in a few hours. But they push up the earth and they tend to have little bits of earth sitting on top of them. Life is like that. You're always walking around with some earth on you. It's the oppressive nature of living in this world. Not just the material world that we can see and hear. You know, all the worlds. The Buddha is the knower of all the worlds. So even the refined happiness of Rupaloka and our Rupaloka still unable to bring ultimate satisfaction to us as human beings. They're still finite, temporary realms. Still bound up with Sankara Dukkha in their conditioned realms. When things change, when karma, karma changes, beings come out of those realms of rarefied happiness back maybe to the human realm or into other realms. And over and over again, you know, samsara, we keep repeating the experience over and over again, searching, hoping for the lasting happiness. But as long as we're looking within the world, within samsara, we never will be satisfied. This brings up the quest for Nibbāna, the highest happiness, nati. Santi paramang sukang, nibbānang paramang sukang. In a peaceful mind, the mind of nibbāna is the highest happiness. But it's outside of the world, outside of saṅsāra. They say the unenlightened person who hasn't yet maybe heard Dhamma and thought about it, the concept of nibbāna sounds like dukkha, sounds like suffering. It's not something they aspire to. They're still hoping for happiness within the world. But for someone, the Aryapugala, who's attained Nibbāna, then the world is the suffering, because they know it's so limited. Hard to bear with, hard to endure, constantly changing, unreliable. That's the change of view that comes through the practice. You might even be able to measure your practice, say this vasa, in how you view the world. How much does your mind still cling on to the hope that there's some lasting happiness in the world? Sometimes that's even enough to pull us back out of the robes into the lay life. How much does our mind incline towards Nibbāna? as the highest happiness. When talking about happiness, the Buddha obviously pointed out many, many different kinds of happiness. And happiness still based on the asavas, the mental pollutants, effluence. Happiness that's beyond the asavas, Happiness based on material things, amisa sukha. Happiness 
beyond material things, niramisa sukha, that come from the practice. The happiness of being free from debt. So as a bhikkhu, not handling money and paying bills and mortgages and things, well, we, we're free from that suffering, the suffering of being in debt. But for lay people, that's an important kind of happiness to achieve. The happiness of sila, mind free from regret about one's conduct, free from feelings of guilt. It's a form of liberation of the mind when we keep the vinaya with good intention and mindfully, and we respect the vinaya and we value it and it brings us to a state where we've liberated the mind from guilt, regret, doubts about our conduct. And all the different kinds of happiness from meditation, you know, happiness based on the factors of jhana, piti, sukha, even the happiness of Upeka is a form of happiness, the Buddha talked about. Not Upeka as a Vetana, just neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant Vetana, which for the unenlightened person tends to stimulate dullness and delusion. But Upeka Sukha, as in the stillness of mind and equanimity towards objects, particularly associated with the fourth jhana, but also as a factor of enlightenment, upeka bojanga. It is a form of happiness, but obviously it's spiritual happiness, very different from gama sukha, sensual happiness. And the Buddha pointed out to, in order to really understand dukkha as dukkha, which is what? is required to penetrate the Four Noble Truths. You know, we have to see dukkha as dukkha. We have to have a certain level of well-being and happiness in the mind, which is why the path requires the development of sila, samadhi and panya. We have to put, develop the right conditions for recognizing and seeing dukkha as dukkha, so that then it can be put in perspective and we can remove some of these delusions and vipalasa that we've been clinging on to for so long. This is why we put effort into the, the Eightfold Path, because it brings us that sense of inner well-being, inner calm that allows the mind to look back at truth, the way things are. As Ajahn Chah used to say, you know, the, all the things of this world are correct. You could say they're correct just as they are. But because our mind sees them wrongly, then they become wrong. So seeing wrongly means you know, because we follow craving and attachment, kilesa, then the mind grasps at the truth wrongly, so we suffer. So dukkha arises, and this is really the dukkha that 
we can remedy and that the Buddha was pointing to. Obviously the nature of the well-being dukkha is one thing, but the dukkha that arises in our minds through wrong thinking, wrong understanding is, is the dukkha that we can really remedy and often very quickly by employing, using the Eightfold Path as our tool. So maybe just bringing up a moment of mindfulness cuts through some mental dukkha we're experiencing, brings the mind back to the present moment, to equanimity, just an unbiased knowing of the way things are rather than always reacting with attraction or aversion or falling into wrong views. So our practice is developing this whole path, the sila, samadhi and panya, to bring up that sense of well-being and the clarity of mind that helps us to really see dukkha as dukkha and then obviously see the cause of dukkha, craving and attachment as it is, as the cause of dukkha, so that the mind is willing to let go of it. When it really knows something is the cause of dukkha, then the mind doesn't disagree. It's willing to put, put down craving and not follow craving. And we talked a lot through the early part of the Vasa about dealing with hindrances and developing states of calm so that we can see uh, how suffering arises and see the nature of our experience of the candors. But one other aspect I haven't talked too much about is the development of states of calm, samadhi, through using insight and wisdom. As we know, panya, developing samadhi, is a phrase some of our teachers use regularly. And you'll see in the course of practicing many days, many weeks, months, in a retreat situation like this, and often wisdom is what we have to rely on when states of samadhi haven't arisen, but where we can apply the Dhamma or in a very ordinary way sometimes to begin with, a very mundane way, just thinking through themes of Dhamma to help establish, establish ourselves in right view and thereby calm the mind down and let go of hindrances. Probably many of you have had experiences where your mind is not particularly peaceful, but you focus the mind on a theme of Dhamma, thinking it through, or sometimes listening to a talk, sometimes chanting. But in a situation where you're not in a meditating on a refined object, say it's the breath, but just using concepts and ideas, but holding attention on them, not letting the mind stray from that theme, can also bring the mind to a state of calm. So often just picking a theme, say anicca or dukkha or anatta, reviewing what you've learned just from memory and from intellectually analyzing these concepts and having listened to teachings, you can use this way 
to calm the mind in meditation, almost like a preamble or a prepar preparatory way of meditating before you turn to a more refined object. And many people say they find it hard to stick with the breath or even find the breath for more than a few moments because their mind is so scattered. So as a way of meditation, just re reflecting on a theme for a period of time, 15, 20 minutes, bringing up, say, the theme of dukkha, learning what is dukkha, what's its nature, how does it apply to you in your experience of this body, this mind and the world. But not in a judgmental way, but just using wise reflection, skillful reflection, running through the theme, keeping your mind on that theme till some of the other hindrances fade and from there one gains more energy, calm, and the mind, the mind might gather together into a, at least a, an initial state of samadhi. It's even possible to do this with more worldly things. Say if you're studying and you've learned you know, the theory about something, engineering or medicine or how, some skill, how to do something, mend a car or cook, cook a meal. You can actually use any number of concepts, knowledge that you already have in your mind, in your memory you bring it up in a systematic way, run through it as a theme while you're sitting in the meditation posture or walking meditation. And you run through that theme, not letting your mind stray away from it. Because you've got that knowledge available to you, you can do this. And you do that for a period of time and it's even possible with a more worldly subject for the mind to settle down into samadhi after a period of time. But certainly the Dhamma would be ideal, reflecting on themes of Dhamma, practices we've done, practice of renunciation, generosity, themes of the three characteristics and each dukkha and so on, are all ideal. One very common one people use is just reflecting on death, Maranānusati. It's a contemplation that may end up as just a one-word recitation. But in the beginning it may be thinking around the subject. What does death mean to me? What, what is death? And the Buddha re reminded us to reflect on death every day, regularly. So what does it mean? If it helps you to cut through particularly all that proliferation about the future, all your expectations and desires, what you want, where you want to go, what you're hoping for and planning for, and just bring up the reflection of death. You really can't be sure what will happen next in your life and how long you've got. And there's no age limit to this, whether you're 20 years old, 40 years old, 60 years old, there's no guarantee of a long life ahead of you. <clears throat> Plenty of monks have died for different reasons at the age of 30, 40, 50. Nothing is guaranteed. 
we can use this to our advantage, just bringing the mind to the truth of the impermanence of life, but reflecting on it, considering the issue, familiarizing ourselves with the issue. What will it mean when I die? What will happen after I die? You know, one day I won't be here. I won't be anywhere in this world, be gone. Everything I own and love will be gone. I'll be separated from that. There'll be other monks sitting here, there'll be other people living in this world. All the things that maybe seem very important now suddenly are put into perspective as you think through this theme. You realize and maybe think issues that you get upset about or angry about or worried about. Then only so important. In, when you face death, they'll be they'll seem much less important. It brings your attention right back to the present moment, to your state of mind right now. If you're really reflecting on death, then you think, well, if I was to die now, do I want to die with anger in my mind, with lust in my mind, with confusion in my mind? It can be a very valuable way, just conceptually going through the, the theme of death to the point where the mind becomes much calmer, established in present moment awareness, and then either just take up a simple concept like reciting the word, it could be maranang or anichawata sankara or any of the funeral chants. Or one could turn to the breath once the mind has settled down. The reflection on death obviously also brings us to the reflection on impermanence. Everything you have and love and like is impermanent. With death you'll separate from it. So it leads naturally on to challenging some of our attachments, cravings that arise. When I die, this craving I'm experiencing in my mind won't be there. The object of my craving won't be there. It won't matter anymore. It gives you some wisdom maybe to just drop certain kinds of craving that are bothering you as you meditate. Different kinds of craving based on negativity, aversion, don't seem so important anymore. And one kind of craving is the desire to get even with people when they annoy us or anger us get us angry, wanting to get back, you know, always wanting to have the last word in an argument or get back at other people in different ways, get the better of them, know more than them, or sometimes just get rid of them, get, get away from them. But when you consider death, it doesn't matter anymore, does it? You don't have to get away from anyone or get the last word in the argument. You can allow things just to fade from your mind. All of this might, you might just be thinking through as a form of meditation just to bring the mind to drop whatever issue is bothering it at the time as you meditate. Or back to the theme of dukkha. 
you know, all the things you can do in this world. There may be many, many good things you can do. You can serve the world in different ways, help other people, amass wealth, become famous, do lots of things, be popular and so on. But in the end it's all impermanent, it's all still dukkha, because it's not the same as Nibbana, it's all worldly objects, the worldly dhammas which arise and cease and are very unreliable. You know, where, there, where there is fame and popularity there's also criticism and dislike. Where there's wealth then there's also loss of wealth. Knowledge, there's also ignorance, so on. In the world, reflecting on the worldly dhammas reminds us of the ultimate limitations of living in this world or seeking all the happiness we can from this world. And if we reflect correctly, it brings up more energy to train the mind towards Nibbāna, bringing up mindfulness, seeing the Nietzsche Dukkha Anatta in our experience, letting go of things. Sometimes people will criticize, particularly monks, say, what, do they, what good do they do in their practice, in their life? Spend all their time just sitting there with their eyes closed. How does that help the world? Obviously, if you're practicing correctly, well, you're bringing up these various qualities that help us to understand the Dhamma, understand the truth. You might be sitting there with your eyes closed, but you might be putting a lot of effort into training the mind, reflecting on the Dhamma, bringing up mindfulness in different ways, contemplating to see the three characteristics in, in your experience as you're sitting. It takes a lot of effort to abandon unwholesome mind states. It takes a lot of effort to bring up mindfulness. Ajahn Chah used to say that sometimes the meditator is like a frog, but not in the sense of just being dull and a dull animal that knows nothing. But say a frog, if you watch a frog down at the pond, what does it do? It sits there for long periods of time, very still and apparently doing nothing. But the frog is very alert. As soon as a fly comes near it, the tongue whips out, grabs the fly pulls it back into the mouth and it gets its food. So apparently it seems very dull and still not doing much, but it's just waiting, waiting for the fly to come and then does the appropriate task to get its food. Meditators are like that. We have to be honing our wisdom, sharpening our mindfulness and wisdom through our practice. It's not just sitting for long hours or walking for long hours. The quality of mind is important. That we are actually directing the mind to the Dhamma, to the present moment, bringing up mindfulness and then reflecting on what's happening in our experience.
Ajahn Chah used to talk a lot about his early days, how initially as he began practicing meditation and visiting different teachers, one of his habits was always to judge a teacher from the outside. You know, as Petujanas, we tend to do this all the time. We, we judge people, what they say, they do, their character, what we like about them, what we don't. We're always comparing. It's really not a sure thing, especially with people who meditate. Like he said, he used to get frustrated with Lumpur Tongrat. Because Lumpur Tongrat used to eat his food very fast. But he also taught the monks to eat their food very slowly, mindfully. Ajahn Chah, when he was young, felt there was a contradiction here. And then he realized over time that Lumpur Tongrat can eat fast. He's very mindful. He doesn't lose his mindfulness at all. That's just his character, his habit. But he's mindful and reflecting on the Dhamma as he ate. But he's giving a general teaching for majority of people is well, eat more slowly. That helps us to be more mindful, contemplate the Dhamma that's arising. He said it took him a while before he didn't get annoyed with this fact. Later on he went to live with Lumpur Ginnery, who was very quiet and very slow, very restrained, say very graceful and beautiful in his behavior. But Lumpur Chao noticed he never saw Lumpur Ginnery meditating. He's saying in his mind, he was saying, everybody says Lumpur Ginnery is a very experienced medit meditator, a liberated practitioner. I never see him do much meditation. So he noticed Lumpur Ginnery would start walking meditation and then after a few steps, he'd stop again. And one day Lumpur Ginnery came over to him and said, you know, Cha, it's not how many steps you walk of meditation, it's where your mind's at. If your mind is mindful and liberated from the kilesas, it doesn't matter what posture you're in and how much you walk. So not only was he giving him a good Dhamma teaching, but he obviously knew exactly what he was thinking. The more we practice, the more we're training in wise reflection and you'll find that this is a great way to cut through wrong views, different kinds of craving and attachment that pop up at different times, especially when mindfulness and samadhi seems hard to maintain, hard to develop. We can also use panya, wisdom at any time, you know, just to reflect on the very mood that you're experiencing that may be making it so hard to meditate or the feeling of pain or tiredness that's becoming something that agitates the mind and just take a moment to reflect how permanent is this mood or this feeling. As Lumpur Chah said, you try and time your emotions. If you're caught into a strong emotional state, lust, anger, worry, sadness. Just time it. Start the clock. How long is this mind state going to last? 
if you keep doing that, just reflecting with a little bit of mindfulness and some wisdom, you may not yet be in the deep state of samadhi, but you can start to withdraw some of your attachment from those emotional states the more you see them as just impermanent mental states coming and going. This is getting to know the world, the loka we do. If you know how the mind works and you know the nature of the mind and the mental activities and experiences you're having, then you don't get deluded so much and they can't make the mind so agitated and scattered. And this is how over time mindfulness and wisdom will gradually lead into samadhi. Maybe you get to the point where you're so familiar with observing the mind and it's the mental activity, you just know straight away not to follow a particular kind of craving. You're just willing to drop it because you know it's leading nowhere, only leading to more agitation, more suffering. In the beginning maybe we doubt a lot, still not sure, so we tend to wander around and craving seems to have a big hold on the mind. The more you practice, the more you know it, it doesn't. Like it's always leading to a dead end, back to more attachment in the world. And the more you recognize the happiness of letting go, the happiness of establishing right view and mindfulness, the more the mind inclines towards it. The more the mind does seek happiness in Nibbāna as a goal, as, a, as an aim in the practice and the less the mind is fascinated with the world and seeks happiness there. So we have some time now before the evening chanting. We can uh, carry on practicing together and I'll finish the talk there. <laughs>